Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is vinyl and joining me in conversation is Kate Dassault. Kate Dassault was raised in Omaha but in the 1980s left for Los Angeles and enjoyed a successful career in radio and music marketing around the country, including East and West Coasts. Kate returned to Omaha in 2014 and founded Hi-Fi House, a vinyl record musicology laboratory and library where members can go to listen to and share thoughts on music and occasionally experience live performances and other gatherings. Kate, thanks for joining me in the studio. Thank you for having me. Where did your interest in music emerge from? My father worked in radio, and I had six brothers and sisters, and we all had our own turntables, and Dad would bring lots of records home. And we all had different tastes, so we were constantly listening to different kinds of music as young kids. How big was your house? The house was pretty big. (laughs) Pretty big. I think it was a five-bedroom house. Susie and I shared a room, and Jim and Tim shared a room. So, yeah, there were five or six bedrooms. So what do you remember about your turntables? I just remember that my dad bought his bought this uh, he bought this fantastic stereo for my mother one year and then we all wanted them and it went from small little turntables to full on systems they were all across the board just depended on your level of interest and whether you were getting a hand me down and getting a new one but we were all proactively interested was there a degree of competition around uh, music? No, not really. I think it, it was a a source of differentiation at a certain point. Uh, my oldest brother, Bill, could tell you anything you needed to know about theater music and musicals. And my brother, Bob, was a huge blues fan, and he could walk you through the blues. Sharon was more a, what do I want to say, sort of a folk rock fan. You know, James Taylor, Carly Simon. Um, I was a Motown kind of soul girl. Susie, who was a year behind me, was a big fan of just classic rock, The Doors, and, and all of that. Um, Jim was a hard rock fan. You know, that's where we learned of ACDC and all of those bands. And then Tim, the youngest, was um, really into sort of the eclectic indie rock. So it was all across the board, and everybody sharing all kinds of music. My, Not just my childhood, but my adulthood. So... On the one hand, you forged identity in terms of your musical tastes, but I would imagine that while that has lived with you throughout your life, you were also widely exposed to all sorts of music given given the diversity you've just described. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was an, it was an amazing learning experience. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing now, because I really do think that listening is an art form, even in conversation, whatever it is you're doing, the art of listening is an important practice. I just don't think that we listen enough anymore. So part of what I'm doing is trying to bring back that practicing the art of listening, really. We just happen to do it with records, (laughs) which I also love. So in that case, describe for me what Hi-Fi House is. We say that we're a musicology lab by day. We have kids come in and and study music there. And we also invite seniors in. And we 
sort of just hang out and listen to records with them and share time with them and let them tell stories about their favorite records. And then we become really a private club at night. But we host album listening parties. We host intimate performances. Um, it's it's an ever-going, ongoing, changing uh, enterprise. And it's very organic in, in the sense that it it's creating itself. We're not dictating. We had no finite plan about what our programming would be when we started. We knew we would have all the records there, but we knew that the programming would be dictated by the community as they came in. What did they want to hear? What did they want to study? What did they, you know, what did they want to share? So maybe describe Hi-Fi House if you didn't know it existed and you you arrive and then what do you see and, and what do you experience? You see a very large living room or what could be your uh, classmate's basement, <laughs> basically, but a very nice basement. Um, it's interestingly, it's completely carpeted. Um, we do that for sound purposes. Um, a lot of comfortable furniture, mostly in a mid-century modern vein. We wanted to um, have vintage furniture, but in the beginning we realized that we wanted our um, anyone from age 2 to 90 to be as comfortable as the other in this space. So we did some work on what would be easy for um, some of the senior community that comes in to get in and out of chairs. So we we were able to find a company that actually had mid-century modern current furniture that met all of those specifications. So a lot of mid-century modern furniture, um, audiophile and, and, and vintage stereo systems, um, a record library in the way back, probably have about 10,000 records in there now. We have another 40,000 we're bringing in, but we're shipping those only as we build the shelves for them because we don't want them sitting on the floor. <laughs> so it's just a, it's a comfortable listening environment. It's meant to, to, to help people sort of shut off all of the messaging that they hear every day. I think kids nowadays especially, you know, they open their eyes and they're exposed to 100 million messages. This is a place where you can just shut that off. We don't allow screens. We don't allow phones. Um, you're either communicating with another human or you're listening to um, either a great record or a great performance. So my experience having visited the Hi-Fi House is exactly how you describe that sense of comfort when you go in. And there are maybe six or eight listening stations, as it were. Uh, is it six or is it eight? There's only actually four. Oh, you really? Yeah. Counters. There are more. There are more systems around, ah, okay. but there are the four listening okay. environments, and each one of them is supposed to sort of represent its own living room. Right. And the idea that hopefully we could find enough people in the community that that loved and enjoyed listening to records and sharing music with each other, that one day we envisioned having lots of uh, private listening rooms in a larger facility. So these would represent each. It would show you what different rooms might look like in an environment like that. Tell me a little about the record collection, which sounds like a daunting number. It's just been collected over the years from just those early records that we were getting as kids to different radio stations that I worked for. I mean, they used to give them away pretty readily when you worked in the, in the business. So picking up a lot that way, and obviously I had, and, and my brothers and sisters have all had ongoing uh 
relationships with vinyl records. And um, so they collected, and now I have all that. So it's all across the board. It's blues, it's jazz, it's Motown, it's soul, it's musicals, it's classical. It's um, There wasn't a rhyme or reason to putting this collection together. It sort of came together through just the family. And then we've had an awful lot of donations come in from uh, Oman's as well. Is that part of its strength, the fact that it's it wasn't deliberately curated, but it's it's emerged organically and it's eclectic? I think that's part of it. I mean, we're missing titles in certain areas that people would like to hear. We haven't been stumped yet, but we look ourselves and say, do we have that? And we realize we don't. So we, we know that there are certain things that we have to capture still and put in the collection. Tell me a little bit about how uh, someone going to the Hi-Fi house would even know where to begin in terms of sitting, being ready to listen to music, but then actually making the choice from sort of 10,000 selections. That's easy. People start talking about music and they start talking about their favorites. So we can either tell them we have what they're looking for. We can recommend records to them. Um, it, it gets it's, – it's interesting because you would think with the four stations, people the, – the first question we get is how does everybody listen at once? And we say don't worry about it. If you've ever hung out in your friend's basement, you'll get it <laughs> and you'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> so no matter how they try to separate themselves – once a record starts playing, everybody wants to get back together and share that experience. We've had as many as 90 people in to listen to the same record when we do an album listening party. I'll never forget the first one that we did was um, Connie Franco's La Maga. And just to watch him sit with 90 people all listening to his record and giving it a serious listen. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in this place. Um, both sides of the record, you knew all of those people had really heard your music as opposed to hearing it with all as, a, as background music or when you're in the middle of 10 other things. Um, really beautiful experience. So people just find, they, they talk about it, and, and you'd be amazed. We go from punk rock to Stanley Jordan to a classical piece with groups of people with completely different interests, and they love it. This is rap music. 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 So Connie Franco is a contemporary musician. And in some ways what you're recreating is a nostalgic vision. Nostalgic for many, but if you look at vinyl sales, it's also a very current situation. There are so many young people. I think it hit. It will hit a billion dollars again this year. Vinyl records haven't hit sales in the billions since the early 80s. I think 81 was the last year that it ever hit that kind of milestone. And the age groups are across the board. Um, so there's a lot of young people buying a lot of vinyl. That only represents about really 6% of the total of all music sold. You know, a lot of it, you know, a bulk of it is digital. And then there's the streaming. But for it to hit a billion dollars again, which was its peak, that is where vinyl peaked, um, is pretty amazing. 
So lots of people are back into it. You see turntables everywhere. You see records. I mean, Barnes & Noble is now selling records. Urban Outfitters has records. Um, you start to see turntables everywhere, too. Nebraska Furniture Mart started putting in 10 different choices of turntables, I noticed. Is this just a nostalgia trend that's been commercialized and commodified? Or is there something else that is special about vinyl and turntables? I think it's the tangible aspect of it. People like to have something they can hold on to. And while CDs were great for a long time, they don't they're, they're just they don't have that beautiful artwork in that large format. Um, so if you if you put a CD next to an album of the same uh, artist, and it's the same actual product, you'll gravitate automatically to the vinyl. It's just beautiful. It's easier to read details, um, liner notes, who's on the record. Um, there's a lot of advantages to just that part of it. So people do love that, and they've started to package the digital download with every album. That I think that, to, in my opinion, that was what made it happen. That's what made the vinyl sales start to surge. You could have it both ways. You know, I'm not a vinyl like snob in that I have you know 800 million songs on my phone, just like everybody else. But I do think that it's a better way to. It's a warmer sound. People say. Um, I do believe that it's a warmer sound, and it's not. Um, it's not a compressed sound. You know, in MP3, we often walk people through um, and show them this a certain Frank Sinatra record that we have, where we'll play them the MP3. And then we'll play them uh, the vinyl piece, and you realize you're missing two violins and a guitar. So you're not even hearing it on the MP3. It's been compressed out. So depending on the level of compression, you're missing full instruments um, on some of these songs. So I find that fascinating that for most of us, me included, I'm completely ignorant of some of those technicalities. And because you don't know what you're missing, and perhaps you don't, I don't have a musical ear in terms of... Uh, the ability to play and discern music, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know these things, and so therefore it becomes a, a complete revelation to me to hear that richness, that that texture. Um, so is is that a common feature of people that 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 come and experience? It has been. It's getting better. The digital uh, files are getting much better. They're getting much more robust. Um, but I don't. Some people believe they've caught up. I don't believe it. I still don't think they deliver the warmth. Um, that just playing a record does. But I think it's coming, and I think it's it's getting harder to tell the difference at that level. But again, you're talking about some pretty phenomenally expensive equipment in some cases and uh, expensive files. You, you know, you can have the record, which still gives you the physical, tangible product versus just the, you know, the, the file that you're going to download digitally, but it does sound as good sometimes. One of the benefits of vinyl is that tangibility that tactility that comes with it as a product but that also brings its challenges and i would imagine that with 10,000 plus that there are um, problems with storage maintenance uh, protecting them um, making sure they're not damaged and 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 maybe in fact reconciling yourself to the fact that they they will be damaged over time absolutely that's why we refer to our collection as a playable collection not an archival collection so when we run across a really rare record, we often send it off to an archive because that's where it belongs. You don't want to play it to death if it's that rare. And if our, if our American archives don't have it, we send it to them. 
Um, we definitely very much want to have a playable collection. Every record in our that that was the beauty of it, and it was part of, you know, why I wanted to do it was all these great records were sitting on shelves, um, the shelves of collectors for so long that nobody was pulling them off the shelf and playing them. And I think an, an important thing for me about the Hi-Fi House is young kids all hear about this vinyl craze. And they're, they're probably not about to go out and buy all the equipment. And records cost $25, new records sometimes. So the, the amount of choice that they're going to have, it's going to take them a while to build up and, and have their favorite records. But for them to have this experience is important. And that's why I think there ought to be a hi-fi house in every city in the country. I really do. There ought to be a place where somebody's curating and taking care of that for the community so that everyone can come and enjoy and have that experience. Everybody ought to be able to hear their favorite record that way when they're in the mood for that. That's just <laughs> my motivation. <laughs> I feel incredibly puny. I think I have maybe 20 LPs if I'm lucky. Um, the pride of my collection is um, I think I have every British released single that the Jam put out. Nice. Um, but um, but that's about it. Um, <laughs> well, that we find we have all sorts of weird collectors um, that are part of part of our membership. Um, there's a young guy. Every time I think I know about music. I'll get somebody that comes in that starts schooling me on things that I had no idea. Um, Zach Shireman, he's a young guy. He he brings a stack of about 15 records with him every time he comes in. And he sort of collects boutique labels from around the world. So he will tell you the stories about the record label. He'll tell you the stories about the releases and the artists. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Nothing I would find out for another 15 years. But he walks in the door with all of it, with the knowledge of all of it, and it's um, it's just an interesting, wonderful experience. And we see that often. Derek Higgins, who I'm sure, you know, certainly people that listen to the station know, has 11,000 people that follow him uh, on his YouTube channel, Just and all he does is talk about records. His collection is phenomenal. And and his again, I mean, Derek will tell you he spent many, many, many years before vinyl got popular again, buying this phenomenal collection in in a dollar at a time. You still could find so many great records. It's getting harder. When I was in New York, I used to see records from Canesville, and I knew that the buyers of the record stores had come through here because they would have these new records. They would have these you know bring in new used records, and they'd have the Canesville sticker on them. So people got pretty smart about getting around the country to Midwestern cities and down south and whatnot and really taking all that they could and taking it back to um, places like New York where they knew it would just sound like crazy. You mentioned 
the collection that you have, but also that you are taking on more. People are offering and donating yep. th- th- their own collections. So tell me a little bit more about, about that, where they're coming from and, and why people are donating. A lot of people just don't have the systems anymore or a member of the family that was a collector has, has passed on. Um, they One story, we had a, a, a woman come in who's son had passed away and she just knew that she had read about us in the newspaper and she just knew he would want his collection of records shared. Um, she didn't want them to go. She didn't want to sell them. She didn't want them sold piecemeal. She wanted them in a place where people could listen to them for the next 10, 15 years. That's the beauty of vinyl. It lasts a hundred years. <laughs> I mean, we have old 78s from, you know, back in the thirties. We even have the um, we have an original Edison that plays the uh, cylinders uh, at our place over there. So we kind of show how it evolved over time. But when she brought his collection in, it was it was so heartwarming, you know. Um, she told us stories about him and his love of music and, you know, what some of his favorites were. And it's a very cathartic experience, I think, um, for, for both of us. And then I've had lots where I, I used to schedule them. Right after that article came out in the World Herald, we got a lot of calls. And I was having the most delightful luncheons for about a month because I would go out to people's house, a lot of them in our senior community, and I would sit and they would have a stack of 50 records. But they had a story for each of the 50 records. So I made sure to schedule them over my lunch because I knew every one of those meetings that was supposed to be just a pick of the, of the records was going to turn into an hour-long conversation. And everybody, everybody loves records. They, they really do. Everybody loves music. So everybody has their stories, their memories associated with it and are happy to share that. that it, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things that we see, too, is when we have seniors come and listen with us and sit down to watch some of the 20-somethings um, engage with them with their music. It's an automatic... It's an automatic common ground. So there's no learning, there's no patronizing, there's no anything. There's a real love on their, you know, on there's a real love on everyone's part for whatever music it is that that happens to be their interest. And they immediately create a bond and immediately start talking to each other in a way that well, the one of the groups that comes from a manual um one of the comments they made was Hi-Fi House is one of the few places where they went on a field trip where people didn't talk at them. They talked to them. So they're used to going on these ventures where they go out and they're told about something, shown something, um, you know, whether it's the zoo or, or whatever it is that they do. They love going there, but they weren't interacting. And I've watched these 20-somethings sit through, you know, four Slim Whitman records um, with someone, you know, an old dank country records. Um, and I've seen them love it as much as the people sharing the records with them. And telling me it's the best experience they've ever had. At first, I thought the young ones would be like, I don't really want to go over there. Everybody that's done has come back and said, that was the coolest thing I've done this year. So, they love sharing it. I remember you. You're the one who said I love you too. Didn't you know? I remember 
distant bell And stars that fell Like the rain out of the blue seems to me that now we're starting to move into the really important part of the Hi-Fi House mission. And it connects to community and, and many other uh, aspects of what makes us richer individuals and a richer society. But maybe speak a little bit more to the Hi-Fi House's role in the community. Well, we feel like we're, we're a little Switzerland over there in the Blackstone District. Um, high house is a fresh idea. So even in the music community, we're Switzerland. We don't buy, you know, we don't sell records. We buy records. We don't sell equipment. We buy equipment. We don't, we, we can be in this space where we can support the entire music infrastructure that already exists here because we don't compete with any of them. We do a show once in a great while, you know, we're not a venue, so we don't compete with the venues. We're really there to foster this habit of listening, this practice, this art of listening. And I think where it really helps is slowing people down. We can slow them down for an hour. Even recognizing that you can have an hour like that for some people is a revelation. I'd forgotten, they say, you know, I'd forgotten what it was like to go somewhere and just chill out. Everything's moving faster. Everybody's working harder. Um, it's it's that one place where you can go and really sort of log out, you know. Well, and you mentioned that you have a no screen, uh, no screen no policy, no laptop, no phone right. policy. Yeah, so people are looking at each other, not their phones, you know. And when an artist is performing, we we have we have strict rules, you know. We have a open door from seven to eight, and come in and talk and chat and do whatever. When that music starts, it's it's quiet, and we will literally escort you out the door if you can't be quiet we think the performers deserve it we want to hear the music that way um and i'm that's not to say that people aren't hooting and hollering in all the right places <laughs> you know somebody plays some fabulous solo you'll hear the place go nuts but respectful listening is the same way that you should listen to someone when you're having a conversation with them it never hurts to work on this practice are you a good listener can you be a better listener i think we one of the t-shirt designs that we're doing right now is good listeners and that's really what we want to foster even with ourselves we um, another great story that's sort of evidence of that is we had a young guy um, mitch getman who probably had done about five records um, at the time that i met him been around the scene for a long time and he came in one day and said that he had gotten to know more people since he joined the Hi-Fi House than in the previous five years. Because these musicians, even these kids that are all musicians, they run into each other at venues, they nod at each other, they see each other a lot, but they're always in these environments where it's noisy and you can't have a conversation. So they, he's gotten to know people that he's known for a long time being at the Hi-Fi House with them because they, they sit and talk and get to know each other a little better. So I don't want this to be 
an explanation that is didactic, but there is an educational component to what's happening here. But it's not, as I say, a um, sort of a rigid curriculum about how to be or what to learn. But tell me a little bit more about how this works and how do people get to visit the Hi-Fi House? We go straight, well, people are invited in. Um, Anyone that is working in the healthcare field that's working with patients is more than welcome to call us and bring in a group of people. Um, We encourage it. Um, School's the same. Um, Teachers want to use the music to teach a lesson. We have science teachers that do it, math teachers that do it. Um, groups of kids teaching history. Um, we're, we're wide open. So we leave the teaching to the teachers. When, when we have the kids just on their own, we try to catch them where they are. We're not ethnomusicologists or, you know, taking musicology really seriously in an academic sense. We are, what do you like now? You might like this. Um, have you ever listened to jazz? Let's play one of the best jazz records ever recorded for you. Um, getting them along paths, encouraging them along certain paths. We had Central Seniors in this past six months who were... Um, working out of their baccalaureate program, I guess. And one of them ends up studying new wave music through the lens of Devo. And we can't wait to hear his presentation, but he spent a long time with it. Actually, I've heard it already, but he's going to come down and give it to the whole group. We had another one that worked on the evolution of hip-hop. Before that, we did a year at the middle school level where we talked to kids. Um, Good example, the first day we went, asked them what their favorite record was, they all came up with the same record. It was something called Black Veil Brides. Um, And you could feel the peer pressure in the room. Nobody wanted to really say. So the next week we took over all these OEAA nominees, um, local artists from, you know, punk to whatever. And they talked about their influences and their favorites. We went back to the school for the third week and the freak flags were flying. I'm into ACDC. I like show tunes. I'm into pop. No, I like... All that peer pressure had gone away. So that was a really interesting thing to watch happen. One of the kids ended up, did not know his grandfather had records or a stereo, ended up having a a, a sort of a weekly Saturday sit down with his grandfather and listen to records together. That was interesting when they reported that back to us. And then, um, you know, just kids, kids acclimating that might have felt a little on the fringe of things, finding people who shared this interest with them. Um, and then we, we, we turned them on to like Miles Davis kind of blue and things like that. And then in the second semester, they did all local listening. Um, so they chose, they did, um, because they were going to produce a concert for the school. So we let them produce a concert for the whole school and they listened to local artists. They chose their artists. They came to the hi-fi house. We taught them how to negotiate contracts and negotiate writers and, um, look at rooms acoustically to pick where they wanted to do the show, to doing posters. They they literally took a, a whole show and produced it. Um, they had C.J. Mills and Twinsmith and uh, Kat DeLuca, and they were all phenomenal. They went over and performed at the school on the last day of school. The kids were just excited as could be. I mean, they had literally, soup to nuts, produced this entire concert. When they came over to negotiate with the artists, as soon as they got it signed, which there was a lot of um, contentious about how many meatballs they were going to get on their spaghetti and their riders, (laughs) um, 
one of the writers, the I think it was C.J. Mill, no, it was Twinsmith, asked for the best artist in school to to recreate their the cover of their album Alligator Years. So this little music club that we had went and found the, the you know an artist in the school and they did that. Others had we need a picture with the principal. Um, there were hysterical things in the riot. Writers are the part of the contract that usually covers food and catering and all those things for a band. And there's some famous ones about people wanting green M&Ms only and things like that. But after they had negotiated with the artists and signed the deals, they then came out into the main room because they did that in the library. And then they came in the main room and they interviewed the artists. So they had to prepare and do interviews for a YouTube channel they were planning to create. I don't know if that ever came about, but they conducted these great interviews. We, we filmed them, so we have them on, on tape. But that, that was a phenomenal learning thing. And one of the things that we wanted to teach kids, one of the things that I like is that probably 98% of all music education in schools is performance-based. And Hi-Fi House, I think, can play a unique role in serving kids that are just fans as well. Um, if you want to work at, I don't care, uh, Spotify or Google or iTunes or anywhere, I promise you, if it's a music-related business and all things are equal, the kid that knows the most about music will get that job. So I encourage people to start listening when they're young if they're big fans of music and they want to work in the business. They might want to be the lawyer. They might want to be the A&R guy. They might want to be the venue promoter. They might want, you know, all kinds of things that don't require that they be the rock star. The more they listen and the more educated they are over uh, about music, the, the, really the likelihood they're going to get the job, you know. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. The theme of this week's show is vinyl, and joining me in conversation is Kate Dassault. interesting about that is it would be very easy to assume that vinyl is an antiquated format and doesn't have relevance. But what you've been talking about is the primacy of music in our lived experience and, and how deeply it touches us and how the world around us encourages us to be poor listeners. Yes. And if you combine poor listening um, with a rejection of certain sort of formats and, and ways that music touches us, that sounds like a terrible combination well if you listen to music in the background it, it's in the background all the time you you know you're driving you're you're reading an article on your phone while the music is playing in the background to me i think it tends to have you listen in the same way when you're talking to another human being i think that that ha it becomes habit and i think it's a bad habit i think a focused listening session of any kind even like the one that we're having right now is a very positive thing, and we need more of it. So you mentioned that your father had been in radio. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about that childhood background. Well, he had been a disc jockey, and then he was, when he was young, he was asked to join the Stores Broadcasting Company, which was from here in Omaha. And we were, I actually was born in Kansas City. 
he was the general manager of this of a station down there called WHB. At the time my father was doing all of this and we were growing up, um, AM radio really still was king, believe it or not. These big 50,000-watt stations, KOMA in Oklahoma, even a lot of people in Omaha used to listen to that, um, WHB in Kansas City. It's It was the early Beatles and all of those uh, those records. And so we were around it a lot. I mean, we even went into the radio station. They used to line us up and pay us a silver dollar to go in and do these things called kids stuff. So we would go in and say, look both ways before you cross the street. Yeah, and that's kids stuff. And I'll remember this, this jockey, Don Lachnane, would give us this big silver dollar at the end of the day. And we were paid. We were stars. And I'm talking about the age of four. I mean, we were little when we started doing these things. And there were enough of us that they could get, like, you know, enough imaging pieces from all of us um, to use for, 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 for months. So it was the familiarity, and even sometimes back then, you still had people performing live on the radio. So you would even see artists that were performing live in the radio studios versus um, venues. Do you remember your first live studio band? No, I, I don't remember the first studio one. I remember the other, uh, I guess, beauty for my parents of having the radio station is they had all the disc jockeys. They were our babysitters. So when my parents wanted to go out, they would send us to Starlight Theater or a show or something because they had the tickets, and they would just give them the tickets and the kids and say, take them and go. So we saw, I mean, I saw the Motown Review when it was Stevie Wonder, The Supremes, Martha and the Van, they were all booked as one act. And it was one of the first tours that they went out, and I was really young. Um, I remember my brothers going and hanging out with the Beach Boys in Miami because they had a station in Miami, WQAM. So there's pictures of them sitting on their shoulders, you know. Um, we were heavily influenced. Artists were around. Um, you know, my dad was really interested in music, and um, they had their favorites too, you know. My dad's, Harry James was one of my dad's favorite artists, and my mom has had 12 different copies of Ella and Lewis, one and two, you know, she she loved those, that record so much that I know that she had 12, 14 different versions of it. So we have like four or five at the Hi-Fi house right now. Um, but yeah, I, we were around it a lot. And there was just, it's never been out of my life. I mean, from the womb, if you want, if you want me to really be deep about it, my mom's role, because my dad... At the radio station, he often would have my mom listen to competitive stations to see who their commercials were and write them down and tell him and snitch <laughs> so that his, he could send his sales team out after those advertisers. So my mother at home, raising us while my father was at work, there was constantly a radio on and constantly listening to music from, from the womb on. It's been there. So how then did you go into the professional career side of music? I was here in Omaha right after college, and I worked, they put a television station in the middle of the World Herald. Um, it was an experiment. And I was one of the news anchors over there. And we, it was kind of a rip and read thing. Give us 20 minutes, we'll give you the world. Um, we were just racking and re-racking national and international headlines. And Ted... Turner filed an antitrust suit against Group W, which ABC and Group W sort of owned us because back in that day, CNN had a really tight 
they they were still doing hour long debates and hour long fashion shows and things like that, and we were catching the news junkies. But their their contract was so tight that they were able to like really push us out of business. So we got severance pay, and I moved to California. And that's when I went from being a journalist to going to work in radio. And I just thought, what am I going to do? So I applied to all the radio stations out there. And then I hid it from my dad for a year because my dad sat on the NAB board, which like created all the bad words you couldn't say. And and I went to work for a heavy metal station was the first station I went to work for. And I didn't even tell him. I didn't even tell him. It was... I was just like, I don't think he's going to go for this. But it was I was living in Laguna Beach, and that station was in Long Beach, and I didn't want to go all the way to L.A. proper commute every day. It was it was one of the best times of my life. I had the shortest hair in the building. Um, we had a blast. It was a real cult audience. Um, and it was the very first heavy metal station in America. So it was interesting. experience in New York because you left the West Coast and then you um, spent time on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, well, a good deal of my time career. was spent doing two weeks in every city of every month. So I, every Sun, every other Sunday I would move. Um, the company I was working for had studios in New York and LA. So I would do two weeks in Manhattan and then go back and do two weeks in LA every month. And during the time I was on either coast travel, so I would travel to Miami or whatever, Boston when I was on the East Coast, and I'd have to go to Phoenix and Seattle and San Francisco when I was on the West Coast. So it's a constantly sort of moving. I'm happy to be off the plains. I'm happy to be in the middle. <laughs> Makes it easier to get to either one now. Um, it took a long time to sort of, you know, when you get your world spinning in that many places, it's hard to unwind all that. So it took a little bit to unwind all that and unwind my own energy levels to to sort of match what I need to be here or what I I, I want to be here. What are you listening to now? I'm listening to a lot of jazz, but that's primarily because we're working on that jazz lab. Um, we do lab projects. Um, our first lab project was a little venue called Milk Run, which was over on 20th and Leavenworth. Um, our lab projects are... Basically, how do we take a little bit of money and put it in the right hands and have a large impact and do something that is positive for the music scene in Omaha? So the only DIY venue besides like, you know, I mean, you can, waiting room will let you in to do a DIY show and things, but they're large. So that small venue that, you know, 50 people can go and it looks like a sold out show and it's fun and young touring bands can come through. That was about to disappear, and we knew, we, knew, we knew when the kids came and asked us if we could help that that it was going to disappear because the, the people who'd been running the one in Benson told us they were going to quit. So from the day we met and said that we would fund it and pay their rent for a year, um, it was only three weeks before they did their first show. And that's the kind of thing that we want to help doing. Otherwise, it's six months of trying to get a grant or raise the money or do whatever. We're able to just 
give them the comfort. And they were the right people to do it. They did 280 shows in the first year. They brought artists to Omaha from 32 different uh, cities that might have otherwise bypassed us. And we paid out a lot of money. I think they sent around forty to $50,000 to to artists. And the investment on, on the part of the Hi-Fi House was really nine fifty a month. So huge impact, a little bit of money, huge impact. Um, we were very, very happy with that project and, and the people that were running it. And Milk Run is now still alive. It's, it's under, you know, there's three young women that are pretty much running it. Um, so I think it'll have its, its life. Um, so that was a fantastic one. It's not the pale moon that excites me, that thrills and delights me, oh no. It's just the nearness of you. It isn't yours. That brings this sensation Oh no It's just the nearness of you But you asked what I was listening to, I'm listening to jazz Because our second, we replaced, we'll forever call it our milk money now Because it was milk run <laughs> But that, that money went to um, Curly Martin's Jazz Lab so everybody pretty much knows who Curly is by now. Um, Curly is, um, I think, 74 now. Um, phenomenal jazz drummer, um, 10 of 10 on drums. And he moved back to Omaha maybe seven years ago now. And he had come to the Hi-Fi house for an event. And then he came back like a couple of days later and he, he, he said, can you let me play here? And I said, well, we're not a venue. And he proceeded to sit down and explain to us that there was no place for a guy like him to play. And here we have the stellar talent in town, but there were there were very few places for them to play. Um, one, because a lot of clubs won't let a drum kit in. They won't let a full drum kit in. So jazz in Omaha was limited to what went on at Love's or trios in the corner, you know, and don't play so loud that we can't talk kind of jazz. And coming from New York, it was... I understood intimately what he was asking for, which was a place to pull in whatever he wanted so so that they could play any kind of jazz that they wanted to on a given night. So the very first thing that he did was um, an organ summit. I mean, they brought in two Hammond B3s, full drum kit, um, and just blew everybody away, you know. And I think we wanted to work to help to help build that jazz audience at the club level. Because the, the, the best jazz in town that was going on was either at Love's or it was at the Holland Center. Um, Love's tended towards smooth jazz a lot when I first moved back here. And I think I've seen, seen that get much more diverse in the past couple of years. But um, at that time, it was a lot of smooth jazz. And then on the other side was the Holland Center, where if you're not already a jazz fan, that price can be prohibitive. So you're not turning young people onto jazz and their own heritage. More importantly, Curly also wanted to um, he wanted to share stories about North Omaha and growing up in North Omaha that he said hadn't been told yet 
A lot had been, but a lot hadn't been. A lot of the guys that left in the 50s and the early 60s, you know, and I looked it up on the internet and there really wasn't anything, wasn't much about Curly or Calvin Keyes or Stemzy Hunter or any of them. There were little snippets. These guys were still out there and playing and and, and doing, you know, phenomenal things in, in music. And so he wanted to, to, to start telling those stories. So we started filming their performances when Curly would bring back one of those guys for each one of these labs when he could. Um, and we would film their performances and then we'd do sit down interviews with them so that we could capture some of that history. Um, Calvin Keyes is a great example. Um, Calvin's one of the most sought after jazz guitarists in the Bay area. He grew up here. I mean, they tell stories about sitting on the lawn over here at, at age 13 and, and drawing a crowd of 50 people, um, more but the more importantly to me they talk about how supportive um the community was and how vibrant it was with music you know that there were multiple jazz clubs that there were mentors a, a guy like curly and i'm sure many other players i've just been having these conversations with him they had mentors they could play in front of that they could go and try to join that they could sit down and play with and it's it's hard to find that um, he, they, they, they talk about, I think Calvin's, I think it was Calvin that said in the interview that we did with him, you would walk around North Omaha and, you know, four, three, three out of five kids all had an instrument case in their hands, whether it was a trumpet or a saxophone or a guitar case or a something. And he said, you just don't see it as much anymore. So they think, and they believe that a part of that is that sort of lack of, um, you know, community related to the playing where you know they're more accessible as players to to younger people not just in clubs that older you know 21 and plus go to they they were allowed to go into these clubs when they were 12 and 13 they just had to sit at a certain table and parents watched out for them and you know watched out for each other's kids in these cases but they were able to grow fast at at, at, at young ages um, one of the other things that I think part of that correction and that loss of the interest in the instruments was was sort of the evolution of hip-hop, too, where you didn't need to play an instrument anymore. You know, a lot of kids that might have aspired to be a trumpet player now were aspiring to, you know, to write lyrics and, you know, create beats and, and, and things like that. So you could still be actively involved in music without playing an instrument. And now it's coming full circle where even the guys in, in hip-hop and rap are, are, are starting to develop live bands behind themselves, and Curly Sun Terrace is a perfect example of that. But this jazz lab, we underwrite it. We, we just have people come in, and, and, and Curly performs, and there are always these amazing performances, um, and we, we film them all. We, don't, we haven't decided what we're going to do with all this film. We don't know whether, it, you know, we're going to have to create or have a committee or somebody. It does not belong at the Hi-Fi House. It either belongs in the schools, the Love Center. We're just not sure where it's going to go. But we just, we have it all there. We don't know what, you know.
on the one hand, I'm hearing about a hi-fi house that reaches into the best of the past and, 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 and makes it contemporary. And I'm also hearing about programs and approaches and a philosophy that is really quite experimental and progressive. In that context, let me just leave you with this final invitation to tell me what is your hope for the Hi-Fi House? Hmm. My hope is that we can impact a lot of this community communicating with each other in a focused listening environment, all ages, 90-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds. If you love music, you can have these conversations that you're not used to having. And it's a, it's a great way to stretch and redevelop contact with people or... Um, and I don't care who you are. I don't care if you didn't buy even bought a record for 40 years, you have your favorite songs. You, you have your favorite artists. Um, so we don't, you don't have to be freaks. So my, my real hope is that it becomes a place where people meet and converse and respect each other in a way that isn't just all sort of you know, I'm running in, I'm buying my lunch, and I'm leaving. It's, it's I'm stopping, I see you, you know. I, I, I want to get to know you. Um, and obviously we can't all have 900 million people we know. But if you've got 1,000, 5,000 Facebook friends, you know, how many did you talk, how many have you talked to recently? So just be that space, I think. Well, it sounds a delightful space. I know it's a delightful space. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Kate Dussault, founder of the Hi-Fi House. Kate, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. I love what you're doing. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>